Hey, this is just a quick note about our sponsor, Pervado, the premier enterprise privacy platform, purpose-built to bridge the gap between privacy and engineering. Its privacy code scanning solution embeds privacy, compliance, and governance into the product development lifecycle and empowers privacy and security teams with unparalleled visibility of sensitive data flows and the insights to find and fix privacy vulnerabilities. You can leverage Pravado's data flows, dynamic data mapping, privacy assessment automation, and real-time visibility of privacy issues. Enter the era of proactive privacy and transform privacy from business blocker to business enabler. To learn more, go to pravado.ai. Hello, I am Deborah J. Farber. Welcome to the Shifting Privacy Left podcast, where we talk about embedding privacy by design and default into the engineering function to prevent privacy harms to humans and to prevent dystopia. Each week, we'll bring you unique discussions with global privacy technologists and innovators working at the bleeding edge of privacy research and emerging technologies, standards, business models, and ecosystems. Today, I'm delighted to welcome my next guest, Andrea Amico, CEO of Privacy for Cars, a leading authority on vehicle privacy and cybersecurity, and the first and only privacy tech company focused on identifying the challenges posed by vehicle data and creating solutions to better protect consumers and businesses alike by offering improved privacy, safety, security, and compliance. Welcome, Andrea. Well, thank you so much, Deborah. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Absolutely glad to have you here. In fact, I want to let everyone know that you are actually having this interview from your car. That is true. And this conversation has been recorded. So there we go. <laughs> there we go. It's pretty pretty meta from the beginning. Absolutely. <laughs> and so one of the reasons that I've been looking forward to interviewing you is that I personally have not had the time to follow the automotive industry very closely, especially around issues of privacy and security. You know, I'm aware that over the past decade or so, we've connected cars to the internet and to each other and other systems, right? We call that connected cars. And that cars, you know, that will allow for self-driving collects tons of data in order to make decisions. But I just simply haven't had the time to dive into how personal data even flows through vehicular systems and networks, let alone identify all the privacy risks. Uh, So along with the audience, I'm excited to geek out with you today on this topic. So to start, what kind of personal data can be found stored in a car's systems? You know, if I bought a used vehicle tomorrow that was formerly part of a rental car fleet, you know, what personal data about other people might I be able to access? A great way to start. So, first of all, cars collect data essentially from two different types of sources. One are the sensors in the cars. You and the audience will probably be extremely familiar with, for instance, things like GPS, And, you know, modern cars, they may think of things like LiDAR and other sensors. They may ignore things that have been in cars for a very long time, such as, you know, every time you sit in the car, I don't know if you know this, but it takes your weight. Um, And again, started all of these data collection from sensors typically started with a very good intent of building safety into vehicles. And then companies realized that this was data they could actually monetize and use it to profile their consumers, and then eventually to sell it. 
And then the second big source of data is actually our phones or whichever other devices we connect. And that's really a big myth that I want to dispel right away, which is that, dear listener, every time you connect your phone to a vehicle, even if you do it, so whether you do it by USB, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, but also if you use things like Apple CarPlay, because we hear a lot, oh, I use Apple CarPlay, so you know my data is safe. That's not how it works. Every time you connect your phone, your cars are designed to download a lot of data from your phone and store it locally. And the local storage is typically unencrypted. So now you end up with a mini clone of the phones and tablets and whatever other devices of anybody, including miners and passengers, right, stored into the cars. So back to your question of what can you find in a rental car? Well, a treasure trove of other people's Rolodexes, text messages, what apps are running on their phones, calendar entries, possibly even emails, records of files they've downloaded from their phones and records of uh, which photos they've taken and so on and so forth. And it really depends car by car, but you can find a lot. So this data, do you need special technical capabilities to be able to access this data or could literally anybody who is playing around in uh, the infotainment systems or the other systems within the car that is collecting this data, would my mother be able to like find this who has no technical capabilities at all? It, it depends, right? And depends by car and also depends by the person. But even without quote unquote, hacking into car and doing things that are really advanced. It's often pretty trivial just from the navigation history of whatever data is in the clear and literally a few taps away on the screens and buttons of your infotainment system to realize who are the people who are driving the car, where do they live, possibly that's associated with garage door codes, of course, which church they may go to or temple, which doctors do they go to see, where do they drop off the kids to school and, you know, all sorts of geolocation data is extremely common to be literally a few taps away. And then, you know, again, depending on the car, you can dig a lot deeper and you can find a lot of other stuff. That's fascinating. And it's just crazy because so many people have vehicles, right? That they're you're renting vehicles all the time and you're not thinking when you're renting a car about all of the data, it's basically you're driving a, a computer <laughs> that many people have hooked up to in the past and will in the future. So, you know, that makes me think, what about third parties like component manufacturers or, you know, former fleet managers who formerly had access to, you know, in this oh. scenario that, you know, if I purchased a car from a, a former uh, that was part of a, a fleet or the car dealers, you know, can they still access the same data or do they have additional data sets that they're able to access about the new car owner? So, yes, they may be able to access data. If the car is connected with telematics, they can either be installed by the manufacturer aftermarket, but also, you know, when you go to a dealership, there are a lot of dealerships that have systems that are installed by the manufacturer that automatically identify the car because, for instance, they may sniff what's the Wi-Fi of the car. And so they know, hey, Andrea, you're just pulled in, in lane number two. Welcome back. Are you here for your oil change, sir? Because we already, you know, we already know everything about you. And so, and again, a lot of this stuff is, in theory, very convenient. But there are privacy concerns here that have so far remained vastly unaddressed across the industry. And not to mention, by the way, 
previous owners may be able to track you. In fact, you know, it is incredibly common for us to hear stories because people know I have an interest on this topic for people to call me and say, hey, I sold my car six months ago. I still know what it is and I can unlock the doors and I can start it. It is incredibly common. And most consumers really don't realize that it is going on. To me, that's just crazy. It just seems so unsafe. And what's bizarre to me is that when I talk about privacy often, I talk about some of the safeguards we need to put in place, I often talk about the automotive industry, right? Like you don't find it oppressive to wear a seatbelt. It's there for safety and that we have laws around it and we've got frameworks around making cars safe and they're highly regulated. And yet here's just like some gaping holes in that safety when it comes to the data that cars collect. You know, I think I have this question tapped for later in the conversation, but I think I'm going to ask it now. Like, why has the industry created this gap? Why haven't they kind of thought through some of the privacy risk modeling and the security safeguards that need to be put in place to protect humans that actually, you you know, are the end users of the product? Yeah, well, so... My belief based on, you know, the many people I talk to that have been in the industry for a very long time is that, honestly, the industry never really thought about privacy for a very long time. And all these devices that put in cars that collect data were designed in a certain way for safety, right? Including making a copy of your text messages and store it in clear text in the computer of the car was a choice that was originally driven by making systems more responsive back when these features started to appear 20 years ago, because it's how long Bluetooth in car has been around, systems were not responsive. And so to make sure people were not distracted or pressing extra buttons and, you know, which could affect their driving behavior, somebody thought at one manufacturer, oh, why don't we just store the text messages into the car? And this way the system is going to be responsive because we can query it locally as opposed to pinging a phone that is not responding on time. And then they never changed. It became legacy. That's how everybody did it. That's how everybody implemented it. And in fact, three or four years ago, I discovered how easy it was to get around the security measures being put in cars to protect information like the text messages. In fact, I taught my daughter back, she she was back then eight years old, to read my wife's text messages by taking them out of the cars. And she could do it, right? And so anybody can do it. If you only think about how to do it, it's actually pretty trivial. And we disclose that responsibly, but amazingly, while companies fixed the cars that they had not produced yet, so they changed those security protocols in line with the guidelines that we suggested, they have never fixed the cars that are in circulation. So if you drive a car that is four or five years old or older, there's a pretty good chance that anybody can show up and take out the text messages without really any effort. An eight-year-old can do it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, loyal listeners. The Shifting Privacy Left podcast is seeking sponsors who want to help educate our growing community of privacy engineers. Position your brand in front of privacy engineers, architects, developers, researchers, and privacy tech buyers. Insert a 30 to 60 second ad like this one into every published episode of the podcast. This is dynamic content after all. Feature your new product, an upcoming conference, a sponsored special deal, endless opportunities. Email sponsorship at shiftingprivacyleft.com for more information on our sponsorship package. Okay, let's get back to our engaging privacy conversation. Wow. 
Well, I think this is the perfect opportunity to ask you to tell us your origin story. How did you get into the privacy space? Since that's not, I know that's not where you originated. You know, how did you kind of, so tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to care about this particular problem of, you know, all the data collected in vehicles and then, you know, how that led you to create privacy for cars. Ah, sure. I'm, I'm I'm an engineer by training. First of all, I spent the first half of my career in consulting, first at McKinsey and then at General Electric, um, and running strategy. And then 12, 13 years ago, I switched to automotive. I entered into the automotive, and one of the companies I was running and managing back then was a large used car inspection company. So these are the companies that will go and inspect your car when you return your lease, or maybe it was when a fleet was defleeting their cars, or rental company was ready to sell their cars. And this was during the first Obama era when the CPB had just been created. And I had a couple of customers who were under this investigation of the CPB for how they were treating consumer records. And of course, nothing to do, you know, it was the bank side. It was not nothing to do with the cars, but I was just curious. And again, being a former consultant and an engineer, I thought that the right thing to do was to pick a random sample of 100 cars and just analyze what data was there, how frequently it was, is it the same if it's a fleet or it's a lease return or rental, whatever, right? So I think that my claim to fame originally was running the first stats on data in cars and make it public. And frankly, it was appalling. And I was absolutely fascinated. I'm sure you can tell from my accent, I'm Italian originally. We are in Europe, we are much more attuned to privacy. I guess we're wired that way for historical reasons. Mm-hmm. And I just took an interest into it. You know, I, I just found fascinating that people literally were leaving their home address, the garage, their codes, and where their kids go to school in cars and not seem to be worrying about it. And when I started to ask, people in the industry didn't know. And that's what shocked me. Nobody seemed to know how cars really worked. And everything they were telling me on how cars were really working did not match my technical experience with how, you know, what I was seeing and what was happening in the systems. And so, again, started hacking into cars and doing some tests. And that's how, you know, I I, I fueled this passion. Uh, And then eventually what happened is that in, you know, 2020, when CCPA passed, companies started to come to me and said, hey, uh, don't you have a system to delete data from cars? I said, yes, yes, I do. So we actually it stopped being, you know, just a passion project in the garage, me and a couple of friends, and started to become a company. So this was never meant to be something that we would turn into a real business, but now finally there's a need for it. So I guess that's that's what I'm doing. Well, bravo for being ahead of your time. You know, it's still crazy to me that there are so few discussions when it comes to vehicle privacy. And so I've been to... Still today, still today, there's very little. Still today, yeah. Because if there were more discussions, I'd be reading them and I'd be up on it (laughs) because I'm constantly searching for, you know, what's new in the privacy tech space uh, and innovation, uh, what's new in privacy engineering and, and following researchers. And so I guess I'm not saying that I cover everything, but if the only thing I've seen in the automotive space regarding privacy has been your work. And that's not to say that there isn't anything else out there, just that there isn't a lot out there. And I'm still very surprised by how little is there, especially since for years now, there's been at like DEF CON, for instance, the mm-hmm. hacker conference every year, or what we like to say, hacker summer camp. I'm engaged to a hacker. I've been going with him for the past eight years. And I remember when they launched 
you know, the hacking of cars. And it was really more around the security of cars as opposed to personal data that was left there. And the news around, you know, the whole scenario of what they were able to find for the most part kind of fizzled out, right? I mean, like there was a lot of news around, oh my gosh, this is dangerous. And then, <laughs> and then perhaps some security was addressed and 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 there were some folks who addressed the potential hacks and 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 put in the appropriate safeguards to prevent that. But the privacy piece really wasn't picked up by anyone and advanced and moved forward within the industry. At least that's what it looks like from the outside of the automotive space. You know, honestly, I don't know exactly why that happened, right? I'll give you my hypothesis, which is that it's a combination of two things. One from one side, the industry wasn't particularly eager to peel the veil and show how much data they had about people and invite questions about how they were protecting this data, how they were managing simple things like consent, which is still vastly mismanaged, if you ask me, right? Mm-hmm. The other side was also, there's a, I think there's a collective imaginary view of cars that just doesn't match reality what cars are today, right? I mean, how many people do you know that say, oh, I need to take a private call, I'm going to go and take it in my car? I will tell you, it's probably the least private place you can possibly take a phone call nowadays. <laughs> really? Who's listening in the car? Like, who's, well, You may, you may not be listening to the conversation, but you know the fact that we are on the phone is absolutely logged into the system of my car. And so mm. people will know which, you know which number I'm dialing in and for how long we've been talking. And you know, there's a lot of metadata associated with what was the phone associated with it. So you know, it's very different than you taking the, the call from your house. But also you will know, you know all of these data is typically associated with your geolocation and Again, there's a lot of extra stuff that gets added, metadata that gets added to any sort of information traditionally wouldn't be associated with it, but it does with cars. But as I was saying, the, the second reason I think it's cultural, I think that people think of the car as your place of freedom, right? It's the modern horse of the modern cowboy or cowgirl, right? It's the, and this is, it's that imaginary that does not match with the fact that what it really is is a network of a lot of computers that store a lot of data in the clear. And that companies are actively trying to monetize. And in fact, right now, you know, we started a project a couple of years ago to try to figure out who has data from which car. And right now in our database, we track over 600 companies that collect and sell data from cars. And I'm sure I'm just still scratching the surface. Wow. But people don't think of the car in the driveway as the largest, most expensive and possibly worst privacy design IoT that there, there is in their house. But that's what that's where we are. Well, I hope we scared everybody appropriately. <laughs> Who's but, listening and, to this? Look, my mission is not to scare anybody, but you know, in reality, we need to talk about it because otherwise we keep living in this land of myth that uh, we've been stuck into for a very long time. And I think it's important we have the conversation. I mean, oh, people, I we want to have safe cars. It's important to have data related to safety, but you know, one thing that, for instance, I find very important that companies should be thinking about is why is that when I consent to give my geolocation so that in case of an accident, you can send an ambulance? At the same time, I'm also consenting to you to use my geolocation for whatever you want and keep it for however you want. That doesn't seem right. Like We wouldn't find this acceptable with any other device, but it's the status quo with cars. That makes complete sense to me. Now, are you seeing kind of a different approach in the EU where like GDPR has to be top of mind to, you know, the large organizations where privacy is enshrined as an actual right 
And then there's the, you know, general data protection regulation that kind of provides most of the rules, not all of them, but most of the rules around personal data plus e-privacy and, and such. Like, is there a little more rigor when it comes to, you know, architecting for privacy there? I don't know how much of your audience is European. And so, you know, feel free to go and send us a note at Info Privacy for Cars if you see anything different. But my perception is talking to a lot of companies in Europe is that most companies don't even understand that the data collected by cars actually falls under GDPR and e-privacy, even though the European Data Protection Board has been extremely explicit about it. And in fact, most companies say, oh, but I put a disclaimer, for instance, my rental agreement, that it's the responsibility of the consumer to take care of their data. And if they leave it behind, we have no responsibility. And I keep telling them, look, the fact that you wrote it and you had a lawyer writing it, it doesn't mean that's how the law works. <laughs> but but that's the that's the reality of Europe. It's very ahead in terms of theoretical protections, but companies are still lacking the understanding on how that regulation specifically applies to mm-hmm. cars and data collected by cars. Fascinating. So what are the main privacy harms that we should be preventing for modern vehicles? And are the privacy harms similar for both connected cars as well as self-driving vehicles? I'm assuming it's different data that's being used. Well, so I'm not sure how to go into the self-driving vehicles simply because I never believed that there will be, you know, something that we would see in a reasonable timeline, at least, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as mass adoption. And, you know, I think it's panning out that probably we're not going to see them for a very long time and uh, unless we, you exclude some very, very specific cases, right? So, but clearly autonomous vehicles will need to collect even more data, but autonomous vehicles will also be extremely shared. So they're going to be less, the, the, the relationship between the car and the person is probably going to be looser. So I think that you have both factors going on in opposite directions. But let's talk about traditional cars, which is what most people drive. Of the almost 300 million cars that are in the United States in circulation, the very vast majority collect personal information of consumers. A relatively small minority, but it considers nowadays almost 100% of the new car production transmits second-by-second information about consumer. We're talking about you know more than 100 data points per second about whatever they're doing in the car, where they're going, what they're listening to, it. You know, all, literally everything right that is going on. And that's the new reality which we're moving into, right? All new cars have essentially an embedded cell phone inside of them that collects data and just like it, it calls home all the time and tells you, tells companies about everything that you're doing. And my observation is that not only consumers are not aware that this is going on, but also the industry is not aware of what is going on. We, we did tests in which we sent mystery shoppers to dealerships and asked them, what data my cars collect and where does it go? And the very mass majority of dealerships told our consumers, there's no data collected, or of course the manufacturer will never sell your data. And, you know, they're not a high tech company. And, you know, they will make all these kind of statements or st- say silly things like, oh, it's all stored in a USB stick in the glove box, which is not even true, right? But I don't attribute any of that to maliciousness. And I, I think people are very easy to pass judgment on dealerships. I think they simply are just like consumers. They have no idea. They don't know, they have a lot of hearsay, they've never been educated on any of this. 
And, and as a consequence, we are passing that lack of knowledge down to consumers who are buying cars, not really understanding how anything works and possibly being told that the car does not collect data when, in fact, they are consented to their second-by-second second data to be collected and sold to hundreds of companies. Wow. So a company's also government, too, right? Like it could be governments might ask for a subpoena for data oh, from vehicles or being able to track a woman who was seeking an abortion if they're in Texas or... Uh, this is an enormous issue. I mean, in the post op era, I think that we need to be really, and I'm sure you know that the FTC is very honed in on anything that is geolocation, but cars are extremely powerful geolocation tracking devices. And not only that, I mean, imagine, you know, the, the extreme case in which you're, you, you know, you want to not be tracked. And so you turn off your phone, you wrap it in foil, you leave it at home, and then you want to go to a clinic. What do you do? You hop in your car and you're done. <laughs> you know, you're going to be tracked no matter what. Um, we have audited all the privacy policies of all the manufacturers. Not a single one says that they will not release data to government unless there's a subpoena or a court order. So in reality, what happens is if the government comes and asks, they'll give the data. Wow. Wow. It's just it's just amazing that, in one, you know, uh, you see a lot of people kind of going to Twitter these days and screaming about free speech beyond the First Amendment definition of free speech, like asking private industry to allow people to say whatever the hell they want on private property. Meanwhile, you don't have those same freedom screaming people going to the car manufacturers and saying, why, why are you surveilling us and, you know, selling data about us and with, you know, without any sort of payment or, you know, we're not getting any value out of it. Like no one seems to be up in arms about this. And it's just fascinating to me because of how much privacy is in the, at the forefront of people's uh, thinking about safety today, whether, you know, no matter where it's coming, whether it comes to online, whether it comes to social media, whether it comes to just how data about them is used and how identity is managed by others. Like our vehicles just never seem to come up. And I, I for one, I'm going to, you know, bring it up in the future, but. Um, yeah. So actually there's a, there's an association, there's an organization, a nonprofit is called Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, uh, STOP. Um, and they're really focused on government and uh, police, you know, law enforcement tracking people in the United States. And they just published a big report focused on cars. And I think it's the very first piece that I saw really focused on cars and civil liberties and implications for law enforcement and government. But well, it's the tide is starting to turn. So that's the good news, right? Right. The bad news is that I think you and I can agree that it was long overdue. But it is good that finally people are starting to pay attention to the topic because we all need cars. I mean, this is in the United States, it's very hard to participate in society without a vehicle, unless you live in very few, you know, highly dense cities. People need a vehicle to have a life, right? To be a, a participating member of society. And so do we really want to not have privacy protections for those? I think the answer is no. No, we absolutely want that. Since this is a podcast show aimed at privacy technologists, engineers, and researchers, uh -huh. I want to ask you about your approach to building and marketing the Privacy for Cars app. How did you go about, you know, well, first tell us a little bit about it, how it, it deletes data and, you know, the, the purpose of using the app. But then, you know, what was your approach in building it to meet the needs of 
enabling compliance and then enabling data protection rights, but also meeting the market need for those who manage vehicles. Yeah. So first of all, you heard it in the origin story, right? That the, the idea, the original idea was to just give a free tool to consumers, right? And then by talking, especially with uh, automotive finance companies, we realized that banks understood that leaving this data in cars was not good. And so at that point, it became pretty obvious that what they were looking for was really a compliance solution. And so for them, it was important not only to delete the data in a way that was effective and cost efficient, but it also was trackable, auditable, right? And something you can go and verify and touch with your hands and robust because otherwise it was not going to be satisfying or enough compliance, right? And so that's really what we try to to do in our program and solution. Our revenue comes entirely from the B2B side, right? So we give stuff away for free to consumers and then we just uh, help companies solve compliance issues. And so the way we design it, first of all, there's two pieces, right? There's a front-end piece, which is an application. And essentially what we do is that when you scan the VIN, which is the vehicle identifier number, every car has a unique identifier, like a fingerprint that is 17 digits long. Once you scan it, we decode that not so much into what is the make model in here, but into what are the modules that collect personal information that are most likely to be in the car, and what procedures do we know? What is the best procedure that we know for each of those modules? And then combine them into a stack of instructions that is specific for the vehicle. And so people that are in the car would be offered a series of steps to do in the car because this cannot be done remotely. You don't, you cannot plug into car and delete this data. We tried. We hacked into cars this way and co- companies told us, if you do that, you're going to be, we're going to be voiding the warranty. So we can't do that. So we need to use the procedure that manufacturers designed. So we had to figure out what are all those procedures, figure out which is the best one for each system, and then kind of glue together and offer them dynamically to whichever person is doing it. And if you do that, it turns out that people do an excellent job at deleting data. And if instead you tell them just, you know, delete the data from the 50 cars in the parking lot, uh, they typically miss more than half, even when they have, you know, when they apply the best effort that they can. So that was one thing we achieved was to be, you know, delivering superior results both in time and effectiveness. And then there's an entire engine behind that tracks what is happening with each car and manages which cars in process, which one they need to be reprocessed and all the different outcomes, all the different exception codes, and you know, all the really nitty-gritty technical stuff that you need to have to have a very robust compliance program in place. And nowadays, fortunately, you know, there are hundreds of companies that use our program. And so we're pretty much established as a as a best practice and a, almost a standard in the United States, at least for the companies that want to do these kind of things. And so fortunately, our records have become widely accepted as this is what you should be doing, and it's the best practice. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we make the process as robust, as intuitive, as extensive as possible, and how do we make those records as robust as possible and visible to consumers eventually. So I don't know if I answered your question. Hopefully I have. Oh, you absolutely have answered my question. I am uh, my follow-up and I was going to ask you about standards, like especially when you said that it provides a set of vehicle instructions that manufacturers provide in order to do this, to do whatever it is, delete the data or whatnot, because you can't just do the easy way where you maybe do a 
easy hack because that will void the warranty. It made me think, well, what if you took what all the good work you've done and officially like created a standard with the industry, perhaps they could streamline the instructions so that it won't void the warranty, but in a way that's maybe an easier set of instructions for individuals than what exists today. Um, have you considered basically taking your best practices and helping to create a standard based off of it, like an f- official standard, like with IEEE or some automotive standards or? or... Um, first of all, I never thought of it in this way. My personal experience is that while auto finance companies and fleets and dealerships, because they touch consumers, they have a vested interest in solving privacy issues. That is a little bit different when you're dealing with the manufacturing side of the house, mm-hmm. but maybe it's just my own my own bias, right? And I mean, re- reality, there's a, there's a real tension here on manufacturers really have a lot of priorities, right? They need to they need to deliver safe cars, they need to launch new features, as you pointed out, cybersecurity for vehicles start to be a, a mature. But, you know, still a very large attack surface and everything that they do with cars, adding sensors and features actually increases that surface, right? So there's more and more work to be done just for the basic securing on cars. And so I think that privacy just never made it on the list of priorities because a lot of other stuff got ahead of it. And so I don't know what would be the appetite. In fact, a few years ago, we observed the fact that there was you know, there were essentially no autonomous cars on the road, but there was a very established SIE standard on how do we define autonomy in vehicles, right? There's five levels of autonomy, and most people in the industry would be able to recite them by heart, right? And we started asking, well, is there a standard for connectivity? And there wasn't one. And so we thought about it, and we created our own rubric on how do we categorize cars on, you know, what's con- your connectivity level from level zero to level five, just like with autonomous vehicles. And we reached out to IAE, the, the, you know, the Association of uh, Automotive Engineers, and, and told them, hey, what do you think of this? And um, we didn't hear back. So, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe there is something here that I, I, it just has not been my experience so far. That makes sense. Well, maybe maybe there are some listening here who want to help create a standard based off of what, you know, all the good work you've done so far. And then just, you know, just make it something that is kind of embedded into the process uh, processes that of creating um, modern vehicles. But, you know, just something to think about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and it's a good thought. And in fact, you know, we're, we're going down the path without, you know, I fundamentally believe that privacy today is where safety was 30 years ago in cars. If you had gone to a, a lot 30 years ago and you had asked, which is the safest of the cars, they would have looked at you like you were a Martian. People had no idea. And I think a lot of companies made the mistake of assuming that since consumers were not shopping for safety, that safety was not important, mm-hmm. or that consumers, or if it became visible, consumers wouldn't shop for it. Now, we know very much that the history is very different, right? But it took an external force. In this case, it was first the um, the Highway Institute for Safety, Insurance Highway Institute for Safety. They started to produce the first crash test, right, with a standardized rubric to rate car safety. And then eventually, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration at the government level created their five-star safety program. And that changed entirely the game. And nowadays, companies compete on who has the safest car. 
and they brag about the new features that improve the safety, right? Absolutely. My modest ambition for our company is that we do that, that we see the ability of changing the market practices around privacy. Nowadays, privacy is not there because it's either not a priority or because companies are focused on monetizing data. But all our studies show us that consumers deeply care about privacy, especially in their cars. And consequently, the only thing that is missing is making it visible. And I think if there's going to be a day, hopefully very, very soon, based on some things we're working on, in which you can go to a lot and as you're shopping for cars and you get to know which car is the most private, I think that we, my hope is that we will see the same change in the market. We'll see somebody like, uh, you know, they will do the Volvo of privacy. Somebody will say, you know what, we want to make our cars safe and private. And that's our position in the market. I mean, Apple has done that with phones. Why not, uh, why not, uh, an automaker shouldn't do that? I think it would be brilliant if somebody did it. So my mission is to drive the market in that direction. I love it. And I absolutely agree that there's opportunity there for the car manufacturers that want to take the lead. You know, one of the challenges is that since they hadn't thought about privacy to begin with, uh, to the extent that they should have to, to architect the systems and think about privacy by design embedded into everything, there's a lot of technical debt there. But given that there's constantly new models, it seems like there's an opportunity to also work on a clean slate design maybe for new cars and thinking from a privacy by design mindset. And then, you know, I, I clearly don't know what it takes to bring a car to market. I'm sure it takes a lot, but there is that opportunity there for a car maker who wants to actually take that mantle of being a privacy preserving vehicle maker and then win the market on it. Because I totally agree with you. You know, people have been saying about privacy generally that everything from privacy is dead to consumers don't care about being tracked. When in reality, it was just so unclear to consumers about how they were being tracked, who's doing what, that that confusion went to the benefit of the big tech companies. Uh, yeah. and, so, and even when they realized it, they just didn't know what to do about it. Because right. frankly, you know, you know, if I want to use the app and how, you know, how do I not click yes, right? To, to I agree to everything. And similarly, when you go and buy a car at a dealership, I don't know if people realize, it's the same thing as clicking on that yes on that button on the app. Mm-hmm. By signing that contract, you are agreeing to your data being used for all sorts of things. And you can't go there with your red pencil and, red, you know, and say, well, I'm striking clause 47 in page eight. That, that, that just doesn't work. You cannot walk out of a dealership with the keys if you try to do that, right? And so it's that inability also that is preventing this from happening. But I agree with you on the technological debt, but again, it's been done before. When the safety ratings came out for the very first time in, at the end of the 90s, the average car scored one and a half out of five stars even though the ratings calculation was much more generous at the time than what it is today. Today's a lot stricter. The, the criteria have evolved and become tougher, right? But so it would be easy to say, well, dang, so we should throw the towel because cars are unsafe and we need to accept it. But reality is that within one engineering cycle, which back in the day was eight years, the average rating had gone up across the board by an entire star. So the, the fact that somebody had started to measure it and gave a rubric, that rubric became essentially what we need to solve for as engineers 
to maximize the number of stars. And that turned out to be really good for consumers. And not only for them, but really good for companies who had safer products. They could sell it faster for higher prices. My hope is, that, again, we'll see the same in privacy. The fact that we're starting from a difficult place, all it means to me is that there's a lot of opportunity. And all of this stuff is really low-hanging fruits. I think that a lot of companies could be making a lot of progress really fast. Just today, they're not focused on it because they're not measured on it. And that's what we want to change. Yeah, you know, that actually brings up a good point. So for one, I hear you saying that, like, um, just making use the privacy usable where the interface is understandable and a person can actually, like, say, yes, I want to delete this or, you know, that is a huge win. That's low-hanging fruit. Just design for that. Um, but what about the back end? Like, where is the data going? Like, you know, I've been in some large companies and had to deal with understanding, you know, that data governance aspect of how it moves through systems in the organization is, you know, really complex. And being able to delete it, something somewhere has downstream effects, but also might have upstream effects. And, you know, is the state of like the comp, the manufacturers and the Vehicle makers, the state of their privacy protocols within their organization, not just the devices themselves, the, the the computers within the cars themselves, but what are the practices like about those who have access to it? The third part, you know, the wholesalers, dealerships, service providers. Uh, is that just a different story? Not low hanging fruit. Oh my gosh, this is so extremely complex because literally, so many different types of companies, right? And the data flows in so many places. But you know, just pure brokers of automotive data. I think we have more than fifty or sixty in our in our database so far, right? So there's a there's a huge market for for this for this data. And again, I think we're just scratching the surface. But Look, some problems are honest, quite honestly difficult to do, right? Because once you have laid an entire network of data flowing a lot of directions, it's really hard to start to pull the strings. But at the same time, it's going to be a lot easier to do it now than 10 years from now. Because the market for vehicle data is just starting. This entire new concept people starting to talk about of the software-defined vehicles in which the vehicle evolves as the software gets upgraded and new features are launched, that's just barely, barely, barely starting. And I think if we start to address these issues now, we're going to find ourselves into a much better position. But if we ignore it, it's like trying to fix now, you know, privacy on on the Internet. Like, you know, it's a huge problem. And it has, you know, there's a huge ecosystem of companies that have billions of dollars at stake every time you go and tweak a tiny little thing. But with cars, we're not quite there yet. And so that's my hope, again, that... Uh, if more people draw attention to cars, it will pay off very handsomely in the years to come. And again, some of the changes that companies need to do are actually pretty trivial. Some of them are really, really just a policy thing, right? An example would be, why can't we start saying in our privacy policy what data we do not collect? There's a few manufacturers that actually do that. There's a handful of manufacturers who say, we do not collect biometrics in our vehicles. Say that. Like, that's a great thing to say, we're just going to take the position of not collecting biometrics. There are some practices, like before we were talking about law enforcement, to for companies to be able to say, you know what, we're going to give data to government only if we have a subpoena or a court order or a similar situation, and otherwise we will not. All it takes is the strike of a pen. There is no database to be re-engineered, right? And so there are a lot of, what I'm saying, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit is there's lots of little stuff like that that will really make 
a one-time bump that is meaningful, and then you leave the harder things over time. But we could dramatically improve how much we respect privacy of people. Even just, you know, the things we were talking before, the, the bundling, the my consent of safety versus non-safety, that's also a strike of the pen kind of thing. Simply, companies have not chosen to do so mm-hmm. because right now they think that their best path to profit is going to be to collect data from consumers and sell it and monetize it in a lot of ways, as opposed to taking the Apple path of buy my car instead of somebody else because it's more private. Right. You know, you're the second guest of mine that has referred to this concept of almost privacy as restraint. Steve Wilson from Lockstep Consulting, we had a whole conversation about privacy to him is is about restraint, what you don't collect about people, what you would, you know, decide up front not to do with data. And, you know, this is just a, another underscore of that concept, you know, communicating to the public what data you don't collect. And, you know, as a, it's a great way to earn trust from the market. So, you know, I love that. Well, what's your retention policy, right? Yep. And you cannot tell me we retain it as long as we think it's necessary or 20 years because no CIO of any other company would find it acceptable. Absolutely. <laughs> Just that basic, right? So how, how have wholesalers, dealerships, and service providers reacted to privacy for cars? Has it been a wake-up call regarding vehicular privacy? Is there momentum in the industry now as a result of you know, consumers and uh, service providers and wholesalers and dealerships alike? seeing it on the market? Well, I'm sure you know that privacy is on the mouth of a lot of people nowadays. And, you know, a lot of regulators are looking into it and a lot of new laws are coming into effect just uh, now in 2023, right? So it is definitely a hot topic. But when we talk to companies, very often, especially with dealerships, right? Many of them tell us, you know what? We actually never thought about this. But doesn't it make sense? I mean, if Deborah brings her car and trades it in, I mean, as a company, wouldn't we want to delete our data and tell her that we're doing that because that's good service? Yes, of course. Right. So beyond the legalities, there's an entire aspect of customer service Mm. and being attentive to what consumers want and need. And frankly, look different than what the dealership across the street or across town is doing. And so actually, we, we see some of our dealership we work with are starting to call people ahead of their lease return. Like they call them months before, as they always did before. But now when they call them, they say, not only, you know, bring it here, we'll give you a good value on your car. But I'll say, if you bring it here, we're going to be deleting your data. And I'm not sure that the same brand across town does the same. So why don't you come to us? And so they're starting to realize that there's value to be communicated to consumers because consumers actually do care. And that's, you know, again... I don't have the power of changing law. And I'm sure that, you know, if we live in a parallel universe in which Deborah is the queen of the universe, probably it will be an alternative reality in which there's more privacy protections for everybody. But we don't, right? Mm -hmm. And so all I can do is to try to change the economics and make it more attractive for companies to do the right thing as opposed to ignore it. And that makes sense. You know, aligning it to areas of revenue generation where, you know, and how do you compete in the marketplace? I mean, that's been something I've been trying to do with privacy in every role I've been in, right? Like privacy is not a cost center. Stop viewing it that way, right? It's not about compliance. It, it Privacy is about ensuring that you are respecting 
your customer, basically, and the rules around their identities and the data that's connected to it. And so by, you know, making it only compliance, you're never going to be embedding privacy within the organization. It's always going to just be an add-on at the end and, you know, minimum required to to be legal as a business. And that's just not going to set you apart uh, as an organization in modern times. So I totally agree with you there. Um, you know, what advice would you give to the developers of automotive software when architecting and developing systems and networks in the space? And how should they approach threat modeling, you know, in your opinion? I know we just talked about some of the low-hanging fruit, which is not regarding the technologists so much. It's maybe more of the realm of the lawyers. But, you know, what advice would you give to the developers in this space? I think starting from simply asking themselves, does this have privacy implication? And see what the reactions are in the room. That's a, that's a great starting point. Because frankly, I see some products coming out and features coming out where I just look at them and I wonder, you know, who in the room didn't raise their hand and think that this was not a not a great idea. <laughs> just you know, just to be blunt. But I think it's part of a very difficult transition in culture in automotive, right? Because Automotive manufacturers until yesterday have been essentially bending metal and putting pieces of metal and plastic together. And now they're supposed to be a high-tech company that writes software. And that transition is hard. And there's a lot of people who are betting against that transition. And I, I think that they can, they can win that transition, but that's not going to be without paying attention to what are actually the implications of, of dealing with data. Right? This is like if I, I've been ma- making until yesterday, you know, typewriters. And then I say, oh, and in the next five years, we're going to f- be following the fo- launching the following features. We're going to be putting a hard drive on that so that, uh, you know, the, the typewriter remembers what we typed. Uh, we're going to replace the sheet with a, with a screen. Oh, and by the way, we're going to be attaching a modem so that uh, the typewriters can talk to each other and also to a central place where we can store all the documents. And you turn them into laptops, but nobody actually has called it out. Hey, guys, we're making laptops now. And it's not the same thing as making typewriters. And so I don't know how that cultural war is going to pan out. But again, my hope is that enough companies will see that privacy is not a problem for the lawyers by the lawyers, but it is something that can help change the positioning of your brand in the market. And I think the second in which they're going to see that, we're going to see wonderful things coming out of the industry. We're not there yet. Well, I love the optimism, and I, you know, I'm with you on that. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I am an optimistic I'm person because that's what happened with safety. Like this has been done before. Mm-hmm. It has, and it, it is only a matter of time. I feel like you know I, we haven't even talked about regulators and stuff like that. I mean, I do think that I don't want to say it's a ticking time bomb, but as a as a concept, the fact that the government hasn't looked at automotive vehicles and all the data that they collect and store and, you know, kind of apply the same approach that the FTC has been applying towards a lot of other areas of commerce, even, you know, it is still mind boggling to me that we are so behind in the automotive space, but you have definitely explained why some of those. And by the way, the FTC has spoken specifically about data left in cars as a problem area three times in the last four years. Right. So, and despite all that guidance, uh, we're still lagging. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what the regulators will think about what needs to happen to actually see a change in the marketplace. And again, I'm not a regulator. All I can do is try to change the economics. 
that's the, the the little area of influence I can try to exert. Right, right. So to to that end, what are what other projects are you working on? I mean, or other organizations that if people were interested in this space, they can plug into. I know you uh, you already mentioned surveillance tech oversight project, which as I was writing it down, I see that spells stop as a, yes. a acronym there. Yes, and then IAE, the Institute of Automotive Engineering. Are there any other projects, initiatives, organizations that you could? Yeah, I mean, the EFF and Consumer Watchdog are always prolific about watching what's happening with cars and data, and they write their own reports, and they're both great organizations. And the fact that Consumer Watchdog is based in California, you know, they're very attuned to the local laws and the fact that California has been leading the 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 nation not 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 just you know in private but specifically for vehicles like uh, people don't realize that the reason why cars are safer and cars are uh, there's a lobby to port in cars and the reason why emissions are better in cars is entirely because of california so <laughs> california has been always on the leading edge and driving change across the entire nation so uh, those are great organizations yeah california definitely has uh, set the standard for a lot of commerce related things including privacy generally and then, frankly, we start to see a lot of industry organizations are speaking about this issue, which, you know, I quite did not expect. But we start to see dealers' organizations talking about it. We start to see associational compliance officers talking about it. So there are a lot of niche organizations really specific on automotive where starting to think about what do we do for privacy, not just the data stored in the past, but just more in general, you know, what do we do for protecting the data that is uh, within the four walls of our dealership or in the database of our bank or anything that is related to a transaction where there's a vehicle, there's a lot more thought into that that we've seen in the last just in the last couple of years. And it's really been driven by regulation, right? Because um, a lot of rules have been changing or are imminent to change next year. Oh, interesting. We'll have to have you back on next next year to tell us about that. Since we're getting to the end of our conversation today, do you have any calls to action for our listeners? For instance, where can they find your app? Well, so the free consumer version is available on stores. So, you know, just go on Google Play or the Apple Store and it's there. They can find the information about us and our research, most importantly, at uh, Privacy for Cars, which is spelled privacy number four cars with an S.com. Uh, and that's also easy to get in touch with me and my social media, uh, preference is LinkedIn and occasionally I'm on Twitter. We'll see what happens now with yeah. the change of ownership, <laughs> but that's where people can uh, track us and find us. And by all means, please reach out because I've been in touch with, uh, increasingly with companies that design telematic system or that collect feeds from, from cars. And they reach out and ask questions about, hey, this is how we're thinking about designing our program. And we're more than happy to give free advice to anybody on what we see, what are the best practices, and just give you food for thought. Well, I know the next time that I rent a car, I will be using Privacy for Cars app to make sure that the uh, data that's on there is uh, um, is deleted. Yeah, or, or ask the renter to come. Like people don't, you know, I started to tell people years ago, people, you know, should should take control, and that's why we launched the application. But the more time passes, the more I realize that that's a little bit naive from my side because asking people to be informed and know what to do at the right time in the right place as opposed to 
asking their dealership, asking their auto finance company, asking their insurance, asking their, you know, fill the blanks, whichever company, right there, company, asking them, what are you doing to protect my data and show me? That's way more powerful because Absolutely. frankly, until consumers start asking, uh, this becomes always tomorrow's or the next, next day's problem and never today's. I 100% agree. I feel like in the ecosystem, if you're putting out a product, it's, you know, it's your job to educate consumers on how to use it safely. I mean, it just seems like common sense to me. I was kind of shocked over my 17 years of, in privacy to kind of see the <laughs> advertising industry, you know, and even the app stores try to pass that off at the beginning on to consumers and be like, no, it's up to the consumers to determine what is safe. That, I mean, like that's the Android kind of point of view versus, you know, there was a little bit of vetting for, for Apple, uh, Apple store. Um, and, you know, just remembering in the advertising space going, I don't understand how you can say this is like, put this on the consumers and ethically say that with a straight face, but yet, you know, that's what happened. Um, so totally agree with you there. I think that's where it, it's best going to, from a public policy standpoint, where the onus should be for privacy assurance. Um, and then, um, you know, Andrea, thank you for joining us today on Shifting Privacy Left to discuss the privacy and security challenges around connected vehicles, privacy for cars app, and your thoughts on building privacy into vehicles by design. And until next Tuesday, everyone, we'll be back with engaging content and another great guest. Thanks for joining us this week on Shifting Privacy Left. Make sure to visit our website, shiftingprivacyleft.com, where you can subscribe to updates so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found this episode valuable, go ahead and share it with a friend. And if you're an engineer who cares passionately about privacy, check out Privato, the developer-friendly privacy platform and sponsor of this show. To learn more, go to privato.ai. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday for a new episode. Bye for now.